Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels, taking the mystery out of running a record label. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Thank you so much for listening. And today we're continuing with our series called Artist on Labels. Now, this was originally um, exclusive. This series originally was exclusive to our Patreon, which is still going, by the way, and and we just had a new member join. Thank you so much. But this series was exclusive and we decided to make it in this new year, um, some new episodes um, available to the whole podcast because it's such a fun series. And what it is, is a a conversation with not a record label owner, not even a music industry professional, but a musician, an artist, a band. And we talk about their experiences with record labels and they teach us what uh, artists are looking for when it comes to a record label, how record labels can be problematic and how we can be better uh, at serving the artists who we're going to sign or serving the artists who we have signed. And so that's the goal with this episode. There's previous episodes that you can hear exclusive in our Patreon. And then there's some new episodes coming up, including today's with a little band you may have heard of called Weedus. This is what a huge, uh, what a huge win to have these guys uh, on the show today. And such a fun chat because we go back and talk about record labels from the 90s and some of the messed up stuff that went on in the 90s. I love this conversation because it reminds me of what you guys as as indie labels today are doing right compared to what labels and how uh, labels behaved and operated back in the early 2000s and in the 90s and 80s and 70s. And so I love to to witness that juxtaposition of, of the way that the, these guys were mistreated by their label so many years ago and how indie labels that I know of today are doing such a better job. But there's so much we can learn from. And man, it's just great to chat with, uh, with this band. It's so iconic and they've actually kind of come back on the scene again. And this is always the case with a great tune like Teenage Dirtbag, but they've come back on the scene because of TikTok and that song getting played uh, in to a younger generation. And I love seeing that. I love seeing that so much because that is such uh, a testament to a, a super great track like Teenage Dirtbag is. I got to stop talking. Uh, please visit our website. If you are new to the show, head over to otherrecordlabels.com. We have tons of resources there. Uh, some free stuff that you can download, include our, including our free toolkit for indie labels to download some uh, resources and some templates and some checklists to help you get started. If you're thinking about starting a record label, if you listen to this episode and go, I could start a small label and sign my friend's band or my own band or um, some some bands that I'm passionate about that I think deserve to be heard, and I can work f- with them and and uh, uh, and propel their careers and propel their music in a way that labels failed to do decades ago. If that's you, go to otherrecordlabels.com and download our free toolkit. It's right there on the homepage, and check out some of our other free resources. I actually forgot. I was I was listening to the. Um, to the elephant in the room, a teenage, uh, yeah, like I was listening to the, the track today <laughs> and I was like, I forgot how acoustic driven that song was. And then it kind of brought, you know, cause you think, you think of grunge and you just think of like this, like what we think of as indie rock today. But, but back then I forgot about how like, there was acoustic guitars in a lot of the rock bands back then, like Counting Crows, obviously Matchbox Twenty. Like, I that's Dave I, Matthews. I, Dave Matthews, yeah, I miss that. I miss that era. Yeah, well, we so um, I think the Dirtbag over the years has been classed as everything except for what it is. It's okay. a iconic <laughs> New York City kind of pop rock song with hip hop influence. Yeah, 
those acoustic guitars, we worked on the tone for those acoustic guitars yeah. for years. Um, yeah, I heard you record, you this. recorded it like three or four times. Oh yeah. The track. Yeah, many, many, yeah. Uh, three, it's, it's just at least four versions of it that we worked on, uh, in the end. Okay. Just Be, getting it closer and closer. Yeah. Yeah. And the issue was, and talked to Phil about this till we were blue in the face, the hybrid that we were looking for, this notion that James Taylor and Paul Simon style guitar tones could exist in a song with a sort of LL Cool J, like <laughs> slow swing. Yeah. And, and then like Metallica, Dinosaur Jr., like electric guitars in the chorus right. and mend all of these things together. Uh, yeah. we, we would have been laughed out of any studio that we brought that concept to if they had an engineer or so, so we were building our own studio, teaching ourselves how to do that very thing. And Phil had extensive experience with a, a device called an MPC 2000, which is a hip hop right. production studio. Sure. Uh, console. And we did the whole thing on that. Yeah. We mm. built the whole record on a really like a hip hop sampling. Wow. Uh, sam and, yeah. and when you started it like on a task cam, right? Your demos was like like a four yeah, track? My my four track demos, I still I still have that task cam. Oh wow. Um, I have a yeah. I have a little four um a little four track as well. And, and the rewind doesn't work. So you have to manually rewind it with your finger just to get it back. <laughs> yeah. My stop doesn't work. So you have to press pause. Oh, okay. <laughs> Everyone has its own little that. quirk. Just lift it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, they're, they're funny. Like they're quite like a nice little investment um, because I bought one for $20, maybe about 10 years ago. And I think now they're maybe three or 400 yeah yours is yeah, probably I mean, worth more than mine <laughs> well, <laughs> no it was just the regular old Tascam uh 424 the gray sort of oh, okay. gunship gray okay um yeah mine is uh blue it wasn't a special one okay yeah okay okay yours, yeah, is, yeah. yours is like the mark three or yeah whatever. that's right four right. i think it's 414 maybe um right right anyway, there you go yeah okay no that's interesting when you when you wrote the when you were demoing the track did you think I mean, this is a stupid question, but did you think this is a hit? There's something special about this. Like, why did uh, it take so long to, for you to realize the vision of that tune? I thought, I thought it was. Yeah. I mean, that you know, part part of my involvement in it was to try to get it to that point. Meaning, I thought it was initially, just as he <laughs> played it for me for the first time on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And then the question was, all right, how can we craft this to be? something that has uh, an accessible production. Right. Yeah. We were, we were kind of, I remember being obsessed with it, not sounding like anything else. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. We had, uh, we were listening to a lot of soul coughing at the time. We kept referencing some Tom Petty records. Mm. We were looking for something that was um, of the moment and beyond the moment and referential toward other moments and sort of like breaking all the rules at the same time in terms of like, well, what's acceptable? What is a practice in a studio? How do you record things? Can we make a wall of metal guitars with an acoustic? Can that be done? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Those, those were unanswered questions and we were novices or Phil was significantly, he, he, Phil was further down <laughs> the, the path than I was in, in recording engineering and uh, technique. Um, and I guess my, my concept was something that met Phil's capabilities. And oh, um, that's cool. Yeah. And he was like very aware of the fact that it was 
probably going to be a great song, but it could also be lost in the recording mm-hmm. just as easily. So we yeah, were totally. super oh, sure. paranoid and careful about how to craft the, the actual record. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that has happened, uh, and probably it's happened more on songs we've never, most of us have never heard. I want to talk about this sound though, because like looking back and I, and as I was as I was immersed in it again this morning, it really does sum up the '90s musically for me, anyhow, and lyrically too. And it's kind of interesting, and and I don't know if you've thought about this, but it, I can hear how this sound just became this this kind of hodgepodge sound that you were aiming for just almost became the sound of indie rock today, which we didn't. I don't think we really had a sound of indie rock then but to me it, i feel I, there's probably a lot of bands who are influenced by that track yeah there were there were bands that were doing interesting things um in that regard i think of like soul coughing again um uh g lovin's and special yeah, yeah, sauce yeah. Yep. um yeah, yeah sure the sublime there's one mix there's one mix of the sublime song uh is what I got that was um, that had this sort of touched upon the hybrid a little mm-hmm. bit. I think a little bit of the Beck stuff too. Beck, yeah, yeah. oh for Beck sure, records. Beck's yeah. records. Um, yeah. But nobody had really gone into um, like uh, uh, something that was truly folk acoustic mm-hmm. and also simultaneously truly um, shred metal. Yeah, yeah, it was, and that was what. Those were my two big feelings about getting the record right was that we had to figure out how to merge those two things, you know, um, where they weren't where they weren't a compromise of each other, but they were actually emanating from the same source, which was my acoustic guitar mm. at the time. Mm. Uh, what, and that was um, that was. Yeah. Was that a problem for radio and, and for labels at the time to to have that? Um it wasn't a problem if they only heard it, but when they saw me with an acoustic guitar, we started to get a lot of static. Oh. Um, conceptually, at least, I think it's difficult for people to get over the guy standing there with an acoustic guitar pumping full-on stereo Metallica sound. Yeah, they just couldn't put that one together. The visual, yeah. and I've always been, I've always been sort of obsessed with the visual that is at odds with, um, it's tone mm. yeah going mm. against the convention of, of the expectation right right yeah yeah and the posturing no that's interesting yeah T- talk and to- i think i think honestly i think a, a lot of a lot of the sort of mis- misogynistic or or sort of patriarchal sensitivities were triggered by this meek acoustic-y dork <laughs> pumping the most fucking shred metal badass shit like in your face. It was like, it was like irritating, right. you know, it was like making some people, certain people mad. You weren't that was, fitting the uh, box. That was something I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was really, I was really being a troll with that. Like, <laughs> you know, like on, on purposefully. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, okay. Let's because talk. Because I like both of those. I like both those genres. I like, I like metal just as much as I like folk. Sure. That's and, fair. And just felt like they're, the the two the two tribes were this designed to for to be destroyed. So that was know? a problem back then because today that's almost cliche. Artists artists love to mix genres, but that was a problem back then. For people, huge problem. Yeah, I mean, we were they wanted Phil out of the band. 
Yeah, you know, popular. Yeah, Phil, they wanted the fourth <laughs> member. They wanted the guy who I made the record with, who who was the only other production partner in the project. They wanted Phil out of the band because it didn't fit a three-piece sort of SoCal <laughs> pop punk. And yeah. I was bringing, I was also bringing banjo to the mix and accordion and a, a right. couple other right. more folk-related instruments to yeah. the band that they were going to try to market as like power pop. Right? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's or crazy. Power pop punk. So let's go back to the '90s and when you were first shopping for a record label. When I when I read your story and I hear other bands' stories from that time, it it seems like, and I, I'm probably wrong, but it seems like if you had a band making interesting music, you could get at least get a meeting with a, a major label. Maybe it wasn't that easy, but tell me what the music industry was like back then. Well, we proceeded as an indie band self-releasing from the start we were mm -hmm. giving away a demo at the shows we were openly not seeking a record deal mm -hmm. um and putting it out on the internet in the real early days yeah of, of you know putting down downloads yeah uh dirtbag and wannabe gangster both were uh up on bmi.com in 1998 Eight or nine? Eight or nine? Yeah. Eight. Wow. I don't know. I can't remember. I think it might have been 99. That's okay. very cool. Early 99. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, um, I worked for a VPN company in Times Square from, from 96, 97, 98. And I was in 99. And I was kind of aware of the fact that music was software because, <laughs> because of the workplace environment where I worked. Right. The guys were really... They were telling me like you're a musician right you got to get your digital rights and i was like my what <laughs> it was like it was, i was in the right place at the right time to learn a little bit about um what we were actually beginning to do right and um so had weedis.com and weedis.org and weedis.net locked down before oh my gosh before the end of the 90s yeah, that's awesome um, you should have grabbed a yeah, few others so, <laughs> <laughs> applecomputer.com yeah. um but, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, we were not pursuing a deal. We weren't pursuing a deal. Mm. It came to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, and, and we, when we found out that they were willing to let us continue self-producing or actually we found that out the hard way when they were like, we're going to put your demos out. We were, right. like, uh. we were like, no, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> give, give us 50 grand and we'll, we'll touch them up and re-record yeah. them and finish them properly. And that's the record, you know? Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, we weren't pursuing a deal. We weren't shopping around. We mm. were just playing shows where there was a line around the block and wow. seeing what happened. And so you then know? somebody, you, you had a lawyer at the time somebody was representing you? We did have somebody who was uh, both management and then, oh, rather attorney. Well, I don't know if which came first, really. I have to look through the court documents to tell you the answer <laughs> to that one. But, um, but the... Um, there was a, a manager around, but what what, ha what happened was that um, a group of friends of ours, um, this guy Chuck and this guy Adam and this guy Arash, they were uh, just friends hanging around the shows, and they knew a guy named Steve who worked at Columbia Records. Mm. And Steve's boss was Kevin Patrick. Mm. And Kevin Patrick was the A&R guy at Columbia who came to one of our shows, grabbed the CD, off the free CD table at the Mercury Lounge and brought it into the morning meeting at Columbia. 
And Donnie Einer said, sign this. Oh, my gosh. And he said, they're self-produced. They don't want to produce. He said, I don't care. Get this now. So that's how That's that incredible. Happened. That's like a movie. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. So talk, take me back then, because like I'm picturing you working at a tech company and and you're scared to death of Y2K like everybody else was. Take me back to um, the Napster like happening at this time, like maybe around the time you, you released the record and you've talked a little bit about how you were really open to it. What was the temperature of things like then in the music industry as Napster was happening? They didn't even know what it was. Hmm. It didn't feel like a threat until, you know, until the industry started to worry that they were going to be taking a big financial hit off of this whole digitized thing. Oh, I see. But initially yeah. it was kind of exciting. Okay. Do you remember the meeting that we had where, the, where, where we came, our first week of sales, I think it was, was it August of mm. 2000? Mm -hmm. They, we sat down for a meeting after our first week and they were like really disappointed that we hadn't broken the psychological barrier of 20,000 records. Mm. And I was like, well, how, how many did we sell? It was like 19,780. <laughs> you know, I was like really yeah. close. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, do we, and I remember I brought this up. I said, do we have any sharing numbers? Do we have any Napster numbers? Is there any way to look at that? How many people are, yeah. are trading the song online? And they were like, what's that? Oh right. man, that's so, crazy. Yeah, so it was kind of like, uh-oh, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, as unprepared as we were for the road, perhaps, in our first tour, they were way more unprepared for the digital trading, file trading, file sharing environment. Mm. So we found that out the hard way that day. And right. it wasn't too long before we began to discuss actually being off of a label, uh, having been on a major Really, and then with within that year, we uh, re recouped our first record. Yeah, wow. Went went into the black, and they were not um, wanting us to release a second one. They refused to release our second album, which we worked on together in Australia. What was happening um, with that? Did you? I want before you get onto that part of the story, the the <laughs> immense pressure that you must have on a sophomore. Did you feel that after having the no. This, no, you didn't. No, I was excited. I was like, finally, we get to make a record without there being popsicle sticks and glue holding it together. <laughs> um, they still were in the end. They still were, <laughs> and we had done we had done a lot of work on album two yep. over over the course of like some of the songs for album two were we worked on during album one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um. So we had we had some structure for album two together. We had had some structure, and that was when, um. They really began to make it uncomfortable to be the band that we were, which was this partnership that you see here mm. right on the production tip. Yeah, I just remembered I had actually went back to the MPC doing stuff with loops again mm -hmm. with uh I guess it was Lemonade and, and uh Holy Amoeba Randall. Uh, yeah, all those yeah. all those freak on was built on that originally. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. A good a good a good half, maybe even more than half, of album three or album two was crafted in the original manner that we made album one. And yeah, I would have, by and by it was made. I, yeah. Sorry. sorry I would have assumed that having a hit single would have given you some sort of authority and would have earned you some sort of trust that you wouldn't have a problem with on your sophomore record. I don't think it was about trust. I think they were not, they didn't have a vision for us having a set, a follow-up. 
Hmm. And I think that that was part of the climate back then. I think that bands got one song and even if it did well, it was tricky. Yeah, there was no good. Definitely. (laughs) I never, I never felt that we were ever really welcome at the label. I don't know. Uh-huh. You, you had a slightly different experience, maybe. But no, I felt, was, I felt like they hated us. Yeah, I was always like, oh, <laughs> we don't belong here. They know it. So I, I, I think there was a bit of imposter syndrome, and possibly it was, uh, you know, for good reason. Yeah, yeah. Do you think things would have worked out at maybe an indie label? Like, I mean, I'm not sure. You know, there would have been less indie labels back at the time, but... Maybe. I, I would say that... You couldn't know this at the time, mm. but we were right exactly on the horizon of being able to self-distribute. Mm. It was within it was within five years of our first endeavors together that yeah. you could really make your own money, yeah, self-distributing, right, and, and having having your own label. and And there were there were prototypes for that. Ani DeFranco had done yeah, just that. She was a hero of true. ours. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were other acts. Fugazi had done something similar where they were entirely independent. Mm. Um, and I felt like, well, we have this opportunity to use the, to, to have access to the major label machine and they're giving us an indie approach or even an independent or a, a, a totally independent approach to production. So, it felt stupid not to take that. Yeah, mm. I still agree. I don't regret it because of how we got to make the record. Mm. Um, the fact that we got to finish the first record and start the second one completely independent. Well, you finished the second one independently. independently. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, but it, but during that time, Phil left the band, and it was really down to a lot of the feelings about the label not wanting us. I was contractually obligated to stay. Mm. Uh, but Phil was a free agent, and I think he made the right move. It was because yeah, it just didn't feel right anymore. It mm. felt like they were trying that, that they were that they were skeptical of this relationship sure. that we that and they didn't understand that that's how teenage dirtbag happened. And that put stress on us personally. Not that we were like fighting or anything, but it was just like there was stress there, you know. And it then, was kind of like well, my dad doesn't want you to come around anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like it was like that kind of fucking. It sucked, man. How old were you guys? Bullshit. How old were you guys at this time? 25 27 you okay. were 27 yeah, okay. 27 okay. 27 28 yeah okay interesting yeah that's got to be that's got to be really tough so how did you get free from um from the the major well we delivered the second record and i was really excited about it i thought it was way better than the first and um the song lemonade was my choice to go into the office with and say this is the first this should be the first one that we roll out with mm-hmm. and they hated it and they it was like this heavy like shredding kind of talking head song mm-hmm. that was was all about insecurity and relationships and um and uh they hated it they 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 thought it was garbage they didn't want to listen to it after the first time and then we went through this sort of bumpy time of trying to propose other singles to mm-hmm. them and uh, in the end, there was a compromise about American and Amsterdam, but they were at that point refusing to release the album in the United States, which held back our financial ability to continue uh, paying ourselves hmm. and continue with the band. So then we had this one meeting that I'm almost glad that Phil wasn't at because I was 
in a bad state, but my bad state worked to our advantage in that one particular meeting. Hmm. They told me that they're not releasing the record. They're not doing a TV budget. They're not doing a video budget. No, 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 no on down the list. Curious why they would invite me personally into a meeting where, where they said no so many times. <laughs> um, felt kind of sadistic, but then uh, they said, well, what do you think? And I, over the years, have th- I've begun to think that they wanted me to say, well, I'll go in to make another record and I'll get you another teenage dirtbag and I'll yeah. keep trying until you're happy. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and I was, but I was scared and green. And I said, I think if you're not putting my records out anymore, I should probably get a day job. And they thought I was being a smart ass. And um, the president of Columbia Records blew his stack at me um, in front of my manager and in front of my attorney at that meeting. And he said, well, if you feel that way, you can have your goddamn record back and you can get the hell out of here. Oh, my gosh. And we held them to that. That was them giving us our masters back. <laughs> Him just losing his temper like that. That's a great so. story. That's <laughs> so we, we, we walked with the, with the masters for the second record and all these years later, lemonade is a song. We never play a show without playing. Sure. It's always in the set list. Uh, <laughs> it's one of our top five on Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. Streaming and stuff. So you know, it, it's so, it didn't, it never even had a video until it was eight years old. So it kind of did its own work in that regard. Right. And, and it's, um, it's so cliche looking back, you know, it's like, like the, the poor decisions that people made in the sixties with smoking in hospitals and stuff. We look back to the, the labels, you know, like with sugar and toothpaste. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, But like, you know, this same thing happened to Wilco around the exact same time. And, and it's like, there's so many stories of labels just not getting it and making these horrible mistakes and, and bands go on to be better without having stuck around. So it's that's a kind of a good end to the story. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if, moving forward, advice for people who are endeavoring to make music, just learn how to do everything yourself. And it's better that you know how to, it's better that you make your own mistakes trying to do something you don't know how to do mm. than to hand it over to a multi-million dollar international media conglomerate for them to make worse mistakes yeah. that you can't walk away from. <laughs> that's, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. I, that's a good point. And then you <laughs> Yeah, and then you get the then you get the privilege of paying for that, yeah, for that right. those mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Have you read yeah. the book um So You Want to Be a Rockstar from the drummer of Semisonic? Have you heard of this book? Oh, it, that is way too close to home for me to read. Uh, yeah, I bet. I, can't. I bet cuz you guys probably were coming up at the exact same time, had pretty much the same trajectory with the with a single, but gosh, yeah, it's he's talking about like in the I got to get a copy of this cuz I read it years ago. It's it's a hilarious book. But like you know, hmm. sitting in a photo shoot and there's like a big spread of gorgeous food for everybody and all of these people, the managers and the photographers are eating this food and you're realizing I'm paying for that. That's my food. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, so dark. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Get out your checkbook. So what was the plan? Um, were you scared when you were relieved from this contract or or, or, or released no. and, or were you relieved? And what? how did you plan to no, say- it's the most- it, it, yeah, there were other things that were scary. Um, this was the dawn of self-distribution. Yeah, There were lots of people who still thought CDs were going to continue. Mm-hmm. They were in my ear. They weren't necessarily affiliated with the label, but there was like, you know, other just physical distributors who were like, well, we'll just do a traditional deal and blah, blah. And I was right. like, yeah, let's let's exclude all the digital rights, please. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> and, you know, iTunes 
And TuneCore distribution, direct distribution wasn't really in place yet, but I was like, I feel like we narrowly avoided uh, a fatal mistake on our first deal mm. when it came to that. So after that, it was like, I don't know what this is going to become, but you can't have it. Oh, that's so smart. Because it could have been the opposite, yeah. where it's like, I don't know what this is, so you can have it. The opposite of George Lucas securing merchandise rights for toys. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah. lot of those stories. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. So um, so then, because, you know, at this time, and this is so interesting you talk about this, Dawn, because there was, there was still a lot of gatekeepers. Uh, and so you had a dis so you you decided we're going to do our own label. We're going to self release. You had the masters, and you secured a physical distribution. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And it did not go well. No. It was okay. it was very expensive and wasteful. You know, you've made CDs with your projects before. You know, you're gonna like yeah. front load the cost to the to the point where you're like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know. Right. Um. Yeah, I guess. But. It was only a handful of years after that. We're talking about doing a bad physical release 2004, 2005. By the time 2006, 2007 roll around, you can directly distribute through TuneCore mm -hmm. digitally. Mm. And this is where the, the real workers acquiring the means of production occurs. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. You were one of the first people I knew using TuneCore. Yeah, we were too. I think we, really. I think we started TuneCore in two thousand seven. Well, that's and, really um, interesting, and that would have been a time. I see. I didn't really know many artists who were established at that time. I knew a lot of artists who were who were getting their music up uh, on iTunes, which was pretty much iTunes and E Music. I think the only real play, the big players for MP3s, but I'm curious, like for you guys being established, already having a following, and now getting. 60, 66% of, of your revenue directly to you with nobody else interfering other than Apple, that must have been a great time. Yeah, it became a bit of a revelation and you started to approach streaming services the way that you approach social media, mm. um, which is to create a conversation about music with music, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's so obvious and so on the nose. But when I tell you that on a major label, that was almost impossible. I mean it like mm. there was so much standing in between the music and, and, a, and a conversation about how it makes people feel. Or, or, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you put out the Gordo Gringo record mm -hmm. during the second Weedis album cycle. Yes. Yeah. And how was that? Like, what? So, yeah, so I started a, a project right after Weedis that it was going to be kind of my music, but picking up on the same kind of independent way of doing things. It was it was a lot of waste, actually. We we took too long to get onto um, any kind of digital distribution. We had a strong MySpace following. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but <laughs> sure. Um, and that and that was and that was you know that was pretty good. That got us um, enough. Uh, picking up on the, the weedest popularity in the UK, that got us enough interest to go over and do a small UK tour. Mm. Um, but there was mostly waste um, because the, here we are ourselves kind of kicking in to make up, you know, a few thousand CDs and yeah. posters and all and try to distribute that and pay for distributors and pay for um, radio, uh, you know, like a radio promo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
for me anyway, it, it never, and I, which is what happens to most independent artists that it, it never really, you know, had returns. Yeah. Oh, and CDs were so expensive then to manufacture too. Yeah. 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 Expensive and they broke easily. And then you had like problems <laughs> with your stock because you were right. eating into your profit margin every time you accidentally right. scratched one, you right. know, and yeah. um, <clears throat> I, I was eager to see CDs disappear and be replaced by something because I, first of all, I always thought that they were inferior anyway, mm. right? They sounded like shit. And, you know, um, while MP3s initially didn't sound any better, they represented a quantum leap for cost and overhead and yeah, waste sure. and pollution and all of that. So yeah. it was like, no, I remember the, the period Accessibility. that yeah, and, yeah. And, and just being able to get it when you're not at a show yeah, that's <laughs> or, right. or at a record store. But I remember that period where you were putting that record out being something like you independent release. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. I was like, right. like excited about like, how is Phil's thing yeah. going to go? Cause I don't know anything about yeah. this. I don't like, this is a dark, uh, yeah, mystical right, art, right, you know? and right. I, and I still, you know, it wasn't financially successful, mm -hmm. but it was a, it was a really fun year and it was mm -hmm. fun to try to do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we did play some great shows and meet some, you know, we, we found a fan base. Right. Um, and people know about that record and people I still play that, that record. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's indelible now in some way out there. I feel like we, we targeted a scene. We were like, we, we were in the, um, Lower East Side, New York City scene. That's where we played every weekend, just about. Mm. We did some shows together back then mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And that's where we were known. And we were able to, you know, make sure all our shows were packed. We played a show together when we were still on Sony and boy, were they pissed off about that. Elbow room. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, you're still friends. What the yeah. you know? Oh my god. And I got you to sing on the, yeah, the I single. I sang fire. on a I sang on one of his singles and they made such a fuss out of it. Oh man. Yeah. So looking back, it was so like you said, wasteful, not yeah. inefficient. Um a positive endeavor in the regard that like you're getting out there, finding out what that's all about, finding out what it's like to put a record out. Mm -hmm. Finding out how difficult it is, finding out what the upside of it is, um, and then no sooner did that little phase of for us it was Suckphony and Too Soon Monsoon, and for you it was the Gordo Gringo record. Then it was digital, mm -hmm. and we stopped talking about CDs. In fact, we went so far as to buy uh, a CD printer mm -hmm. uh, so that if our fans who were really dedicated wanted physical product, we could make it. Um, on call and right. not yeah and not have like this production of a thousand cds that you need space to store safely yeah you know there was um, there was talk of uh retailers were talking in that time like uh i would say maybe like mid 2000s where they were talking about just having like a print-on-demand thing in the store so you come in mm -hmm. and you tell them you go through a catalog i'd like this one and then they print it off the machine i mean it never stuck obviously but yeah well it would have been more efficient but that's not that's going to be a lot of uh manufacturing cost overhead for storefront owners to maintain yeah, yeah that's so right yeah. i could see how that wouldn't work yeah out. but it didn't matter anyway because the the, the digital distribution game was always inevitable mm. and there was just a lot of denial and a lot of pushback. I think the first five years of the 2000s was most label energy was spent on 
pushing back on yeah. digital being angry about it. Yeah. being angry about yeah. it and yeah. putting rootkit in in Sony CDs and all like spyware and bullshit yeah. that they yeah. you know all the tricks they tried yeah. and it was all for nothing that's right um yeah you know did you try any other i mean like uh, did you try any other type of physical music products like vinyl yeah 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 and yeah. vinyl's been more successful sure yeah well, it's, Vinyl, it, vinyl's much more of a passion project too, because yeah. you you really have to oversee the vinyl manufacturing process. You have to be mm -hmm. involved directly. You mm -hmm. have to really know how that's that part of it works. Mm -hmm. What the difference is between a lacquer and a master and a mother and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. like you really need to get your get your shit right when it comes to stampers and and keeping your stampers safe. And but that's you know that you've made at that point you've made a a really sophisticated, refined version of your music. Yeah. So it's much easier to um, archive and, and um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, it's funny that you talk about that because a lot of us will compare it to CDs like as if it were an Apple to a little bit more of an expensive or Apple. But to me, it's completely different. You know, a CD was just a, a way to hear the music in the same way that an MP3 is. But vinyl is different. Vinyl, as you're describing from the artist's perspective, but from the fan perspective, it's it's a very, very meaningful physical connection to the artist. It feels yeah. like some sort of like conduit that we have. Like it's it's bigger psychologically than a CD ever was, at least for me. And I bought a lot of CDs. Yeah. It's, it's the difference between a drawing on a piece of paper and a person walking into your room. Yeah. It's very, very different. Yeah, There's right. no comparison. Yeah. And, and, um, and if it's done properly, it is the best mm -hmm. way to listen to music still. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm excited about seeing vinyl sales tick up because that means that we can take our time to make better records that people will want moving into the future. Like I think, uh, our, uh, 180 gram one inch tape vinyl cut from, from DSD of our second record is the best thing we've ever done. Hmm. It's like, it blows everything away. It blows the first album away. It's like, and people come up to me at shows with the, with the record and they're like, this is the third copy. I'm keeping this one in plastic right? because I, I played the other two and they sound really good. And I'm holding on to this one like, because <laughs> that's, awesome. that's how you have to do it. Like that's yeah. how vinyl works. Yeah. And, and, um, and no CD or MP3 could ever demand that sort of like attention from, from fans or buyers, you know? It's interesting. I've been keeping an eye on reissues that are coming out of the 90s and the early 2000s, and it must be kind of hard for, for bands like you to go back if you want to reissue stuff because of, was it recorded on ADAT? You know, who's got the files? We talk about this all the time. Okay. Uh, that that there are vinyl cuts that are being reissued now that are just, oh, they cut this off the CD 100%. or the DAT, or maybe the yeah. DAT. 100%. They don't have the tape anymore. Yeah. And and it's like I mean I don't know if you Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab just got busted, um, oh. cutting cutting discs off of DSD, which my is my favorite personally. Mm. I my personal belief is that DSD is the only future proof format that exists. Okay. And if you're dumping original Bob Dylan or Led Zeppelin tapes mm. onto DSD, that tape is never going to sound the same twice unless you listen to that one capture from on the DSD file. Mm. Which is which is infinitely more resolute than analog, and um, 
but at any rate, they got busted using DSD files to cut AAA records. Hmm. Now, I think that our standards should be updated to include DSD in that regard because it is a freeze frame of the analog perfectly preserved. But um, that's another sure, sure, conversation. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But you're, but you're right. right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Same with the artwork, too. I mean, how they're scanning the CDs, even, I'm sure. Like, it's got to be a nightmare sure. to go back. And who has the, the rights to it, the license? Like, all these companies have split apart, too, or com- amalgamated. And you don't know who has the tapes. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes the engineer went home with the tapes and he, yeah, not telling anybody that he's got them. Yeah. You know, the, the original reel to reel of the police, you know, who yeah. has it? Does Sting have it? Or does some guy from, you know, EMI have it? Or, yeah, that's right. Or Parlophone have it? Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Like IRS records. Like who has this stuff? This, the original um, source material is like paramount importance when you're talking about cutting something that sounds great well and you can kind of tell when a band is advertising something and endorsing it themselves and the and the package is really great you kind of you know you think that that they have the source material versus when a major label is just issuing something it's on black vinyl it's really cheap it's going just to urban outfitters that's probably where the the cd to vinyl thing is happening so to tie the room together a little bit, literally, we're in Phil's studio right now that he maintains much the same way that I maintain a studio where my master's, my library is within arm's reach. Hmm. Right. And, you know, if we make a record, if we make a cut on vinyl, we don't do it unless we can do it from our source material. Hmm. I wouldn't even bother with doing it another way because it's, it's a cheat on right. your on your fans you know right um yeah and this is kind of the more complicated part of running your own label label is <laughs> can be synonymous with archive or that's right library yes or you know so i like, think about so, that a lot so, yeah yeah so you got to be prepared to keep your stuff and keep it in, in good condition or else um speaking of having even if it is yeah. Speaking of having your own studio and and comparing it to how arduous and how much red tape you experienced at major labels, what I love about self-releasing as an independent artist or as your own label or on a smaller label is how prolific you can be versus what you're talking about back then. It must have been a nightmare to say, hey, we want to do you know, a, a, an album of demos or a, yep. an acoustic album. But now you can record something today and get it out to everyone today. Do you like that? Yeah. Do you appreciate that? That's what we're doing today, actually. Oh, good. (laughs) Much prefer that. Yeah. 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 It's really liberating. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you have a, you have a very early work schedule. You come here and work at four o'clock in the morning on your own stuff, right? So to have time to work on my own stuff, I get up at 4am. Good for you. It's like the new midnight. Good for you. And then I have like four hours to myself every morning. Yeah. uh, I do anything to have the freedom to like work on stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I I recorded an album on a boat. Oh, cool. Um, just built a studio on a boat and lived on that for 10 days. That's awesome. And, uh, just finishing those mixes here. That's amazing. Yeah. I would have been there with you for some of that if I, I wasn't know. training drummers. I remember. No, I remember. <laughs> I wanted to have you out there. Yeah. You got to hear it. I got to play the record. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm dying for now. I'll, I'll, I'll take a cut. I'll take a cut without <laughs> sight, sight unheard. Uh, so... Let me ask you about, well, let's, let's wrap this up when it comes to record labels. Going back to those Columbia days, 
what did you what would you have wanted to have from your label what makes a great record label today i mean this is partly advice for our listeners who are running small and mid-sized indie record labels um if you're if you're an artist who is not comfortable doing stuff on your own and you sign to a, a label what do you look for in a label or what do you wish you had from columbia at the time Well, to really uh, for the label to understand you as an artist, like what your vision is um, and and to kind of help to bridge that um, relationship with your fan base hmm. um, and to have that be the uh, the ticket to success, hmm. not to try to um, market you to an audience that doesn't really fit in with what you're doing or try to force you into mm -hmm. um, a, a space that you don't naturally um, fit into. Right. There was a lot of that. There was also, I remember wishing that they understood our relationship more and that this, that this, the way we worked together was the reason that that first record came together the way yeah. that it did. And it was the reason that it sounded the way that it did. Um, and that I think if they understood that they would have had a, as a corporate priority to protect and nurture mm. the partnership and not try and split it apart as, mm. as hard as they did because they went out of their way to split us up and clearly it didn't fucking work but <laughs> but like i mean you know in in the immediate in the immediate short run it did i mean they stopped yeah. us from yeah. making the second record together and the yeah. third and yeah. um you know i think there's an alternate universe maybe where as as tough as things were with kevin sometimes i think that he was sad that he couldn't protect it right and was being forced to himself to ask us to do things that we didn't want to do and yeah that were just, he was kind of like, oh, just they want to do this. Will you just say yes to them and get them off my back kind of thing? And it was like, I understand he's not a powerful, he's not a, uh, ubiqu he's not a um, unilateral decider at the label. He has to deal with his colleagues. So it was like mm. a failure of the entire structure of the label to understand the asset, if there was one, mm. and, and to maybe damage it instead of protecting it. Um, I guess it has to, I guess advice would be for it to feel right. Like you have to, like, if you feel uncomfortable around the people on this indie label or whatever label you're, you're getting on, then it's not going to work. And I'd say for label uh, owners, uh, you also have to have a good rapport with the artists. Like they have to feel right. It's not just about you loving their single, mm. um, but you have to kind of get their whole vibe and they have to be people you want to be around and be working with. That's great advice. And it's, it's, it just seems so obvious now it's that, you know, the people and the arrangement and the relationship and the equipment that created Teenage Dirtbag, you know, that's what they signed. And we talk about this, a lot of our, our label owners talk about the idea of you fell in love with this artist. You discovered them on Bandcamp or, or, or you heard them at a show. You fell in love with the artist for what they are. And to never try to change that. And so, I mean, that's just solid advice. It seems so crazy to think that that was missed out uh, in the early oh, yeah. 2000s. I mean, a, a label, a good label will nurture and help that thing that they fell in love with evolve. Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. right. That's, that's a process that's part of their responsibility as a business partnership. Make it, make it grow, make it evolve, mm -hmm, nurture mm -hmm. it. Um, but in our case, it was direct destruction that we were facing which yeah. was peculiar to us considering how we made the record. And we had to come to terms as friends with the fact that our big multinational media conglomerate business partner entertainment company yeah. was not the least bit interested in how we did things. 
Mm. How, the, how the sausage got made was not important to them. They were quite content to destroy that process, thinking that something else could replace it, that they didn't It's 24 sign. years now. I think it was about 24 years ago that he and I started working on the Teenage Dirtbag record. And, uh, and we're working together again. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Well, that is... I'm also working with an indie label now, uh, Totally Real Records, and um, yeah. Brian Sendrowitz. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I'm in Beat Radio. And I just produced. Oh um, my gosh! Of course, that. yeah. Oh, so hold on one second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told you he should be. Uh, oh gosh, yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> the cassette. Wait, I, can I get a cassette? Hold on. <laughs> you just had a record come out like two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, you, you just, can't it just hear. came out two weeks ago, right? Yeah. Yes, I know that. Yes. I, on cassette. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's, that's totally crazy. Oh yes, yeah. I know. I mean, we've had totally real on here before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and and he's great, Brian. Uh, yeah. Brian is great to work with. Oh my gosh, what a great guy! Um, he, so we just had a we had a release so party crazy. on Friday, <laughs> and uh, and he's there, and he's like, you know, has his little suitcase set up, selling the the cassettes and the Beautiful. vinyl right out of it. Yeah, and he's part of the band, and he in fact even jumps up on stage with us because it was like, uh, yes, that's a good relationship. Yes, to be a, a, a like an unseen member. Of the band or a non-performing right. member right. yeah that's a great point yeah it's like a gang you're a gang with when you're with your, your team <laughs> yeah. your, your band and, and your yeah label. it should be like that oh my gosh that is so crazy what a small world you must yeah. have been disappointed were you disappointed back in the in the 90s and early 2000s when the label let you down did you have high hopes that these were these were going to be nice guys that or was was you know i was always i was personally always skeptical skeptical that okay of them be just because I was already in and out of enough situations to be skeptical okay. of Yeah, of you're record. mid to late twenties. Okay. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um I wasn't prepared for them to overtly attempt to split the partnership that made the record mm -hmm. that made money. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah. weird. Yeah, that, that was unexpected. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that was a strangely targeted attack. I'm not I'm still to this day not quite sure where the inception of that idea came from, whether it came from management or the label itself. Somebody somewhere said we got to split them up and make them a three piece. Hmm. Yeah. And did fail to have a conversation about, yeah, but they made Teenage Dirtbag together. <laughs> okay. Some couple goes into a bank and says, we'd like to get a mortgage. And they're like, how about instead of divorce? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or Lennon and McCartney come in with a day in a life and they're yeah. like, hey, George, we just we uh, see two separate things. We, we, yeah, we, we, we did this thing. What are you thinking? He's like, why don't you two never work together again? <laughs> like like it was like that and it was yeah. just like what weird <laughs> like, eh? that's yeah. so weird yeah so we lived that but survived it yeah so well that is a great part of the story is that here we are talking um 20 odd years later and uh yeah who even knows where those other guys are so um let's let me just ask you really quickly what's happening in 2023 uh as our listeners are tuning in what's what's happening with you guys so we're talking about going back to the UK. In fact, I would like to do it together. There's mm -hmm. a version of our live show that I would love to be able to put together where uh, the new Wheatus opens up for the old Wheatus. Oh, right. Um, okay. For, the, for what would have been the 20th anniversary, but was postponed due to COVID. We could maybe do it in 2023. Yeah. Or if we have to wait till 2025 and make it the 25th anniversary, we will. Yeah, but um, cool. yeah, we're, uh, we're releasing a 20-song version of our first album that Phil mixed Mm. Um, uh, so we're back together on a technical partnership on the, on the reissue, the new teenage dirtbag, which is on Spotify and all streaming services right now. 
Teenage Dirtbag 2020 was mixed by Phil. That's great. Um, and um, and so it's you know it's up to s- almost seven million plays already. So awesome. yeah, I mean that's incredible. You know, they they never they never were able to split us up. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Besides that, um, and being in beat radio, um, I'm going to be putting out that album I did on a boat. Um, I think the project's going to be called The Wanderly. Okay. So the Wanderly. Oh, that's cool. What <laughs> uh, a, a dude on a boat does in ten days. Yeah. Where do you get the electricity from? Solar panel. Oh, solar, solar panel charging up batteries. Yeah. Look at this. Uh, this is great. Yeah, yeah I'm excited. I, I shot a documentary of the process too, so my plan is to release it sort of together. That's awesome. Yeah, making of and the album. Yeah, that'll be exciting to hear. And uh, t- tell me a little bit about the Kinks track as well. Right. So, um, yeah, we we did a we were approached. Uh, it's a long story, but I'll make it short. We met Dave Davies by accident the day that we were approached by an independent record label to record a Kinks cover. <laughs> and now Dave and, and Ray both know about it. Yeah. And they're helping us promote the record. And That's I crazy. can't believe those words are coming out of my yeah, mouth. As yeah. That's <laughs> true. One of my all-time but, but I mean, so yeah, it's like Phil's by Phil, proxy. Yeah. Phil's, Phil's a way bigger Kinks fan than anyone I've ever met. And, um, it's just a strange confluence of amazing yeah. coincidence. That's that, awesome. And yeah, and so that's coming out on um, uh, Wicked Opossum Records. Uh, in uh, well, we're doing a. It's coming out in December, but we're doing a whole uh, promo campaign in conjunction with the Kinks Camp and Universal Records to try and push um, this wonderful Kinks catalog that is belongs in a museum and is is amazing well you know that's interesting because i really do love the idea and this is one of the the things that we can almost thank streaming for is the idea of younger generations discovering older music and catalog music and uh, you know i would you could even say that about uh, about weedus as well but i mean the the fact of the matter is that there's college kids right now that weren't alive when this record came out and the same thing for the kinks obviously but i think that's beautiful because the the music really it doesn't date itself some some old music does but um i think it's great to have every year there's a new 20 year old who's discovering all sorts of music i love that that's the benefit of independent digital distribution as well mm. uh, in the past you know back in the back in the physical era prior to the internet CDs and uh, tapes and vinyl went out of production. That's right. And were only available secondhand. Mm-hmm. Good and point. And now it's this permanently renewable resource mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's posted on the internet. You can always find it. So that it's, a- it's, it's future-proofing the existence of art yeah. in a way. Yeah. No, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Because, I mean, when a, if a record sold poorly, there's no way a, a label would... Re- even do a hundred copies just for the one or two people right. a year who want to discover it. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's and a great oddly, point. we're we're a case study in that our second record was not physically released hmm. be, due to spite or whatever they were feeling at the label and um and it but it is in it's still on the internet now. Yeah, and that's right. It's got millions of plays. And yeah. That, that couldn't be prevented by by you know them telling their production line to stop making this one or whatever. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and our listeners are going to get so much out of this. So I really appreciate chatting with you guys. It's an honor. Oh, same, man. Thank you so much for paying attention. We appreciate it. 
Thank you all for listening. What a full circle moment because a couple of weeks ago on the show, we had another label and we talked about this just in this episode, but we talked about Wicked Opossum, a, a brand new label. In fact, when we did the interview with them a few weeks ago, they hadn't even released anything yet. And you've got to go back and listen to this story because the founder, Mike, um, in starting this label and taking his time, you know, months, almost a year of, of slowly building this label, got in touch with Weedus and was able to get Weedus to record a song for the Kinks compilation that Mike was putting together for his yet to begin, begun, to yet to have formed label, Wicked Opossum. I love that story because um, talk about, you know, uh, batting for the fences. Is that the expression or, uh, or I don't know what it is, but anyhow. I'm not a baseball guy. But anyway, I just love that story because he had such a, a hairy, audacious goal and uh, and he made it happen. And what a way to start a label. So go back and listen to that episode and check out the Kinks compilation that Weedus was a part of. You can also learn more about Weedus, um, not that you probably need to learn about them, everybody knows them, uh, by going to Weedus.com. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, if you are new to the show, uh, please subscribe and welcome. Thank you for listening. And uh, if you need any resources, if you want to learn more about record labels and how record labels can do a better job at serving um, indie artists, then go to our website, otherrecordlabels.com, where I have a bunch of free resources that you can download, including our record label toolkit. Thanks for listening.